Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Ben Myers, VP of Sustainability at Boston Properties, and Serene L. Moment, co-founder and CEO at Senseware. We talked about Senseware's founding story, general trends in indoor air quality and real estate post-pandemic, how Senseware and Boston Properties are working together to deploy IAQ technology across 50 million square feet, how Boston Properties approaches indoor air quality standards, and much, much more. So without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Ben Myers and Serene L. Moment. Hey, Ben and Serene. Welcome to the show. Can we start with you, Ben? You've been on the show before. Can you just remind people if they have or haven't uh, seen your episode or listened to your episode? Can you give a little intro? Sure, James. Thanks a lot for having me back. I'm Ben Myers. I'm the Vice President of Sustainability at Boston Properties. And in my role, I focus a lot on the built environment, energy efficiency, water efficiency, waste performance, and also all of our initiatives related to climate action and resilience, including decarbonization and our net zero goal of 2025. I also work on healthy buildings, which is why you've invited me back. It was an honor to be on this podcast once, and I'm so thrilled to be back again to talk about healthy buildings with one of my favorite people. Me or Serene? Serene. (laughs) That's what I thought. That's very sweet. So real quick, though, we're going to talk about your guys' portfolio. Can you give a little bit of a background on that before we dive in? Absolutely. So Boston Properties is a now BXP. We've rebranded and we're a fully integrated real estate investment trust. We own, manage, develop, and acquire a portfolio of about 50 million square feet. We're located in Boston, New York, San Francisco, DC, LA, and now Seattle. And we are working on primarily Class A office buildings, but also have a portfolio of residential properties and a a rapidly growing life science portfolio. So fairly well diversified and and fairly well located in gateway cities. And yeah, I think the episode with you, we'll put it in the show notes. I think it's called Ben Myers on decarbonizing 50 million square feet, which is just no pressure there. Serene, let's go to you. This is your first time on the show. So welcome. Thanks for joining us. Can you introduce yourself and give us your background, please? Yeah, absolutely. I am so uh, glad to be here and also honored being with this good company, both you and Ben. And yeah, so I'm Serena Moman. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Sunswear, based out of the DC area. A little bit about my background before Senseware, I've worked in, in, in different roles. I, I would summarize uh, that by uh, work that revolves around digitization, automation, and data, mostly in government-type projects where, from a digitization point of view, I would take we would take things like paper forms, turn them into digital forms, for example, and doing a lot of that across different U.S. agencies, government agencies, uh, automating a lot of processes that were done manually and through people and computerizing that, and then using a lot of data 
optimization uh, of process through data. So, so mostly government-related work being in the D.C. area. And then at the same time, I was doing my grad uh, school. So that, and just to back out, I am software engineer by background. That's how what I did for my bachelor degree, uh, then went to business schools at Johns Hopkins while working full-time, and then also did my Ph.D. at George Mason. Uh, and that work was also related to digitization automation. So I did my health, my work in, in the PhD project around healthcare and improving emergency departments, operations and quality of service by looking at data around the resources, the beds, the nurses, doctors and whatnot, and then using data to say, okay, this is how you need to change your workflow so that people would wait less in emergency departments. Uh, that's all before Senseware. And um, towards the end of my PhD, I met my current co-founder at Senseware, Julian Stamatakis, in a conference in Portugal. And he was one of the speakers, and he was talking about this technology that he developed that uses sensors like accelerometers to better assess Parkinson's disease uh, patients severity levels because the sensors would pick up on things that the doctors wouldn't, naked eyes wouldn't. And as he was looking at data, he realized, oh, another sensor like a gyroscope would be great to add to the mix. But he couldn't because that meant he needed to redevelop that technology that he created that accepts one sensor data. Hmm. And that was for me, the light bulb moment. So I was just in the audience. I was there because my research was in healthcare as well and met him after. And I said, what if we developed a technology that where you can connect any sensor at any time without having to redevelop the core technology? And he said, yeah, it's possible we could do it. And, you know, that's basically was the start of Senseware. We said, okay, let's do it. And, uh, went to my basement uh, and set up everything that we needed to set up to do it. He was more on the hardware side, so he took care of the hardware, had my software background, so I did the software side of things, and Senseware was born. Obviously, we do different things today than healthcare, which I could get into later, but yeah, we we had a very interesting journey to to this point. So that's that's a little bit of my background. Well, I'd love for you to catch us up now. That's a fascinating background. How did you get from healthcare to what we're going to talk about today, which is IAQ and buildings? Yeah, that's interesting uh, story as well. So we started the technology connecting to different medical sensors all in one system and also making it very universal and future-proof because we knew that once we would look at some sensor data, we would understand the need for other data set. So that was the whole thing. And we had that first prototype done and then we wanted to go to market with it, but it was there was a lot of red tape for the healthcare space when you're talking about connecting medical sensor that go into patient into the cloud. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of resistance there. So we didn't get the traction that we needed to keep going in that space. And it was just a you know hard realization, very discouraging. But then, you know, picked ourselves up and we said, hey, we developed this great technology that can connect to any sensor that's out there. It doesn't have to be healthcare-based sensors. So why don't we just pitch it more as such? And 
we just signed up to a lot of those demo days and pitch days and whatnot. And we went out and we talked about it more generically as here's a technology where you can connect any sensor at any point and get real-time data in the cloud at speed without having to do much and very plug and play. And we got a lot of interest from people that were working somehow in that real estate space, uh, building environment, built environment. They came to us after the meetings and said, hmm, so can you then connect to my energy meter or this, you know, sensor on my sump pump or, you know, this other sensor, you know, water meter or whatnot. And we said, well, meters to us are like sensors. They have, they're collecting data and they have an output for the data. So if they have, as long as they have an output, we can connect to it. And so we entertained this discussions and, and that kind of was the start of us pivoting more into the built environment. As we started to talk to those people, we landed a first customer, then a second customer, and then a third. And, you know, we just got the traction that we didn't get before. And we knew that, you know, maybe that's the market that was more ripe for real-time data and access for information. And yeah, here we are, fast forward eight years later. That's all we have been focusing on from a market perspective. And I want to say just specifically, because we're talking about IQ today, the indoor quality application on our platform in terms of sensor data has been there from the very beginning. This was like 2016, I think, was the first time we we integrated some of the IQ sensors, not as advanced as today. The temperature and humidity was kind of the first iteration, added CO2 at some point based on customer need. And then we actually got into the environmental type sensors to the sound and light before the more the other air quality type sensor. So it was this journey from, you know, from the beginning in terms of the sensor data and then how that whole market just changed from accuracy of sensors and types of sensors that are now available that we also can integrate with and offer to the market. So, yeah. So I know you guys as an IAQ vendor, it sounds like you're, you're maybe known as that, but you do all types of sensors. Is that still accurate? Yeah, definitely. It's still accurate. So, just to kind of frame that and why it's important to have more than IAQ is that uh, even before COVID, we, the specific indoor air quality monitoring application on our platform was tied to energy research. So we would be involved in a lot of, you know, the LBNL type research, the DOE funded research around new technology to improve HVAC operations so that you reduce consumption of energy. And, you know, as the researchers were and the projects that were funded to measure and verify these new technologies, we needed to, you know, help create a solution that capture energy data and IQ data. And together, all this data point can give them an idea of whether technology, the new technology and innovation is working or not. So the the multi data is, I think, has been important before. I think it'll continue to be important into the future. And we feel very good that we have this platform that can grow with the data set as people start to realize the need for other things. So yeah, that's that's a big, you know, important piece that we are trying to educate people more about. 
Got it. Um, okay, I have two more questions on your background before we dive into IAQ stuff. One is what you mean by plug and play. So if you think about the IAQ stack or the sensor stack, there are a lot of vendors that that manufacture their own sensor and then they do the, the entire rest of the stack as well. So can you talk about what you mean by that in the context of, is it other people's sensors that you guys bring together into the solution or is it your full stack or how does, how does that piece work? And then what makes them plug and play? Because that, that word gets thrown a lot around a lot in the sure. industry uh, a little bit. So can you can you clarify that a little bit? Yeah, so plug and play in our world means that we're able to plug in any sensor to our core infrastructure. So we have our hardware that has uh, this patented te- technology that's called universal sensor interface. Hmm. And so we could take any sensor, whatever output that sensor is, Uh, built to have and can just plug it into our universal interface and immediately we are able to read that sense of data translate it into meaningful data into the cloud Um, so that's really the the plug and play nature that we have we don't develop our own sensors we are basically the connection between sensors in the cloud and we bring real time we make sensors iot if you will that's all our people say describe as the headsets we connect, okay. make them connected real time sensors um yeah which also helps just being future proof because we don't know all the sensors that will be available and we just feel ready to accept anything yeah with this technology. Mm-hmm. i like it okay my last question on your background is you mentioned, or you did not mention, you failed to mention a role at Georgetown. Can you talk, talk a little bit about that side gig? Yeah, so I've always believed that you learn, you apply, and you return, like that cycle. And mm-hmm. So part of returning back to the community was you know, getting this role at uh, Georgetown University as an adjunct professor in the M- MBA program of the School of Business. And I teach three different courses, actually a fourth one coming up on entrepreneurship. So different stages of building an organization. And just, it's a lot of fun giving, you know, sharing a lot of real world lessons learned and, and things mm-hmm. like that just brings a lot of, uh, a lot of energy to me. And uh, it's just been amazing. I've been doing it for three years now, four years, something like that. That's impressive. And I'd second that. Teaching gives you so much energy. It also, it also makes you feel like we're all kind of in this together. Because a lot of what, what our foundations course is, is sharing obstacles that I hope other people don't have to navigate around, right? And so you get so much energy from that process, like helping people along, but also other people are sharing the solutions that they've come across. So yeah, totally agree. All right, let's talk about IAQ. So I'm on my first work trip, well, my second work trip, my first work trip since the Omicron wave here in the US, right? So I'd love to just reflect real quick on just like general state of IAQ. Where are we today as we sort of, I guess, come out of the pandemic? Here I am in an office right now today. Um, as we come out of the pandemic, maybe start with you, Ben. How are, how are you thinking about IAQ today? Well, it's, I mean, it's evident that the client focus on IAQ has fundamentally changed and we're getting a lot more inquiries from our customers around indoor air quality, what measures, what management plan we have, the level of filtration, how much outside air we're bringing in on a CFM per person basis. And we've 
done a lot of work, frankly, to communicate everything we're doing out to our, our customers. We've increased filtration levels to a MERV 13 minimum. We've done everything in terms of testing that we're supposed to, testing biannually, partnered with UL on that program in pandemic response. We're closely with FitWell on the adoption of the viral response module across our entire portfolio and did a really robust assessment of ventilation capacity at all of our base building systems. Now, we're, we're on a journey, and I think that this really started before the pandemic. It wasn't like pandemic clicked something on for us with IQ. It was, it was Joe Allen, the cognitive function study that completely changed my view of air and how little we understood about the air we breathe, where you know, EPA sets maximum contamination limits for water. There's dozens of them for drinking water. We know very little about indoor air quality. Mm-hmm. And then Joe Allen made this very clear business case around cognitive function that any you know, real estate salesperson with a pulse could pick up and say, hey, if you're going to double cognitive function with better air quality, class A offices must offer this increased air quality. Now, I was sitting at, in the middle of all this as it was unfolding, thinking about air quality through the lens of energy efficiency and, and carbon performance. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that over the years, many of the most impactful energy conservation measures had involved choking off ventilation air to buildings. And so I recognized a real need for IAQ monitoring so that we didn't over-optimize for energy efficiency and sacrifice healthy buildings at the same time. So when I, when I think about energy and ventilation and comfort, as like a trinity, let's say the holy trinity of, of indoor air quality. Um, anytime you over-optimize for one, you sacrifice another. And with better indoor air quality sensing, I think we can solve the problem of providing healthy environments while also conserving energy and carbon. And so that's what got me really excited about this technology. One one brief anecdote, it was, it was 2018 and I was still thinking about okay, how do we do monitoring at scale in commercial buildings? And I was reading, I get a lot of magazines, so they pile up on my desk. I, I wish they were electronic, but I still get these building trade magazines and it was a facilities management magazine. And I was flipping through and I saw an ad from Kaytera, who you've had on. So I actually reached out to, to Kaytera through their website and got Liam. And he showed up like a few weeks later with a duffel bag, of sense edges. And so I started okay. traveling around like 2018, 2019 with a sense edge on planes and trains, set them up in conference rooms, set them up in our gym yeah. slash music studio slash playroom at home and became obsessed with how different uses of the space changed parameters like VOCs, PM 2.5 mm. and carbon dioxide. And, and from there I knew with the costs coming down for these air quality devices and the business value and the proposition that Joe Allen had raised with the COGFX study, this was inevitable that buildings were going to adopt these at scale, not just for demand control ventilation in a few conference rooms, but more more broadly. And then the pandemic absolutely uh, poured gasoline on on that. Mm -hmm. And now, now I think if you aren't adding IAQ sensing to your your buildings, you're, you're missing the movement. Fascinating. 
Yeah. And I think I've said this a lot of times on the podcast. I was one of those people that was choking down outside air. Well, I would say it's more of a control sequence thing, you know, making sure control sequences were tailored to provide minimum outside air. And, and I think what I've realized is I was first like, you know, this doubling of ventilation or whatever, you know, the kind of movement was, I've realized that they're not totally in conflict as long as you're, you know, you know, managing both of them at the same time, like you said. And in your case, Ben, you said a trinity. It's fascinating. I, I was wondering if we could talk about the recent, so there was a release from the White House in the U.S. Now, not all of our listeners are going to be in the U.S. here, but for the for those U.S. folks, I thought it was pretty wild to hear the White House talk about IEQ. Now, there's a lot of smart people at CEQ at the White House, which we've had a couple of them on the show before. So I'm not surprised in that respect, but it's just it's just a sign of where we're at as an industry where the White House is talking about basically, you know, here are our recommendations on indoor, indoor air quality. Can you guys talk about what that kind of means? Well, first of all, maybe what is it? And Serene, maybe we go to you for this. What is this clean air and buildings challenge? And then what do you think it kind of means for the industry? Yeah, I can summarize in my head, you know, reading through it, um, I summarize it in two things what, what it is. First, it's a call to action for leaders, building owners, operators of all types of assets, whether it's school, commercial buildings and whatnot, to assess their indoor air quality and make ventilation and air filtration improvements to help keep occupants safe. And the second piece that I feel is a part of this whole thing is for building owners and operators to have to acknowledge their responsibility for the quality of the air that occupants are exposed to. So those are the two takeaways I want to say from what, you know, what it's trying to communicate. And the overarching thing, and that's also related to, to a speech by Biden, is that how can we into the future coexist with pandemics similar mm. to COVID in case something like that happened and not have to disrupt businesses and schools yep. uh, and whatnot because it happens. So let's prepare for a future based on what we've learned from this, this event. Uh, so yeah, that's that's how how I saw it. And to the point about uh, just, you know, just the, this is a US thing. It was interesting once um, this uh, announcement uh, came out, I actually, a friend in, in Dubai <laughs> reached out to me and said, did you see this? And she works in the government there. And it actually sent a wave, you know, a wave or a shockwave, I don't know, to the entire world, I think, because people are looking at what the U.S. is doing. And now they're questioning, oh, are we missing something? Should we have something like this? And then I read an article about in the U.K. referencing this and saying something about actually the U.K. government funding efforts specifically for schools so they're paying for air quality improvement and monitoring in schools. They're sending some monitors for free kind of to the schools and they're taking, you know, funding that. So I'm referencing that this is, you know, it's great that the U.S. is doing it. We're doing it to, you know, something more, you know, towards mm -hmm. that as well. So I think it, it really will affect the world, not just here. Yeah, Ben, what are your thoughts? I mean, it seems like the list of what you guys have done and the list of what they're recommending is pretty similar. <laughs> so when I read that and I was thinking about you coming on the show, I was like, well, uh, like a lot of this Ben's already been, you know, down the road on. I'm going to speak for all the 
epidemiologists on Twitter that specialize in air quality and say, like, we should have been discussing that in April of 2020, mm-hmm. not April of 2022. So for me, it's too little, too late. And it doesn't really change what leading organizations were doing and paying attention to. If you're reading ASHRAE releases and OSHA and CDC and reading between the lines and speaking with the right people, you knew all of this much earlier. So while I'm happy that something from the White House creates shockwaves and brings more attention to these very basic issues around indoor air quality and the prevention of the spread of infectious disease, I wish it hadn't taken so long, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, for sure. So let's jump into your your guys' work together. The we're going to talk about IAQ and like the projects you guys are doing, but it sounds like you guys started working together with water. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about, Ben? Yeah. So we set a, a 30% water use reduction goal around the time I started in full-time sustainability here at 2015. And I had always thought as a lead AP, someone who worked on green buildings since 2005, that water was used in toilets and faucets. And we weren't really focused on process water. And when I went down to DC around 2016, 2017, I began to learn about how much water we were losing from evaporation in our cooling mm-hmm. towers. So it was, it was 30 to 40% of our water consumption in, in certain buildings. And I worked closely with Jeff Garner and our engineering team, Bill Atkinson, down in D.C. to to learn about a technology they had adopted that helped them control the amount they blew down the the cooling towers. So the the water becomes contaminated over time. It builds up with electroconductivity. And if you measure EC and monitor EC, you can optimize how much blowdown you do and save. What I learned was a very generous quantity. Uh, of water. So okay. uh, that one, once I saw, I mean, if one theme I think I'm getting from everything Serene said so far is their adaptive capacity. They see problems and they quickly adopt a method of sol- solving it through connected sensors. And mm-hmm. this is an example of a company that came up with a very innovative solution for us that had an immediate impact. And, and that was our, our first installation of, of cooling tower water optimization by controlling EC. Got it. So they're basically saying when when the electric what do you say electric connectivity? Yeah, when the, when the connectivity when the the salts build up to a certain level, that's when you should blow down, but not before. But not at a regular schedule, like probably most other people do. Yeah, fascinating. How much savings was that? I'm just curious. It, it was significant. I mean, today our, our water use we, we met our 30 percent goal, so it was. I mean, it certainly saved around 10 percent. At some of those mm-hmm. buildings, we've had it, but it varies building by building depending on the ratio of process okay. to our consumption from from faucets and fixtures. And Serene, do you have a lot of clients that sort of implement that? Oh, what I would call a water conservation measure. So definitely on the cooling tower monitoring side, Boston Properties was the first to do it that way in terms of approaching the water conservation issue. So definitely trendsetter, based on that use case, actually some of the largest cooling tower manufacturers learned about it and came to us and said, what? We need this to be part of that their solution as they're selling their cooling towers because that's one big issue that 
their customers are asking for looking for solutions. And so they did, did uh, help with, with that, but definitely was the first. The other watertight, you know, conservation measures are not as uh, extensive that we are involved in. So just simply monitoring water, consumption water meters in real time, things like that. But yeah, Foster Powers is going above and beyond for sure. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together, and they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Trendsetters. Yeah. So, so Ben... Moving into IAQ, can you talk about how, you know, you know, the general process of, you know, you said you started out with the Kytera sensor on the train, and then you've, you've come a long way since then to kind of scaling up Senseware's product. Can you talk about that, that journey to kind of selecting a, a preferred vendor and, and what that process looked like? Right. So I was a sustainability leader with an idea that this IEQ sensing was going to become relevant. And then the pandemic struck and I was named to lead our health security task force. So then I had a lot of more people to share that idea with that I was leading in addressing the pandemic. And we, we formed an air and water quality working group that became an IAQ technology working group um, because of the need to vet and evaluate technologies. And we were looking at everything from bipolar ionization to needlepoint ionization to UVC treatment and really narrowed our focus to testing, monitoring, ventilating, and filtering air, right? And if you could do those things well, we thought that's what's going to endure uh, beyond the pandemic. Those are the, those are the practices that will absolutely endure. So I was thinking about air quality monitoring and I happened to go on a long bike ride with Jim Whalen out into the suburban areas north of Boston, which was a great break uh, from these health security meetings. And we started talking about air quality and we started talking about IAQ and we wanted to set up a little lab where we started looking at different air quality sensors. And that's what we did. I mean, sitting next to a collection of three different sensors here, we've got sensors in our offices and we started learning about how to install, what the limitations were, how to how we should think about structuring a schematic for air quality assurance as a as a building operator owner that doesn't control all the tenant spaces. Mm-hmm. What sensors were better suited for induct applications versus in-room applications, and how we begin to build out a process, a workflow with all of our engineers in the buildings to make the data. You had a, a great podcast with Kytera and DLR a while back. And I think it was something like more signal, less noise. That was the first thing I was acutely aware of is how important it was that we get the signaling right so that the engineers could make the data actionable. Mm. Uh, and that was a, a early focus of ours with our working group, which involved engineering and, and Jim Whalen, our CTO, CIO. Very cool. So, so Ben, what was the like the process for getting to selecting a vendor in the sea of of noise? I would call it of all the vendors out there. Well, first of all, we wanted to find a solution that that met our objectives, and we had a, an idea that we wanted to do continuous monitoring of air 
quality in the systems that we control. So it was really important that we had a solution that we could scale across our portfolio that we could install and deploy mm-hmm. uh, in a timely manner that would measure accurately supply and return from our base building systems as well as outside air. And so we we looked across. You mean airflow? Airflow. No, no airflow. not airflow. Not airflow monitoring. Supply okay. air, return air. We did look at airflow monitoring stations. In airflow monitoring stations are really complicated, and mm-hmm. then there's there's large questions on whether they're accurate once you install them. Atrocious to maintain. Tremendous yeah. cost. Really yeah. hard to maintain. So we we decided to go with sensors. Um, and developed a schematic, developed a plan, and began interviewing. And we really we wanted a company that was going to adapt with us. And Senseware had proven their capability to adapt with us through the years we've been working with them. And we, we especially appreciated their focus on accuracy and, mm-hmm. and really to the quality of the sensors. And that, that came across in every meeting, that it was about data integrity, getting accurate measurements, and replacing sensors if they weren't working. So they're very good about acknowledging that we'll have some sensors that fail. And, and so we, we set up an arrangement where we were able to do a first tranche of buildings. We have 500 sensors being installed now, about 400 at least are in across 40 buildings. And we're growing our deployment now um, as we speak. Okay. And, and so I'm hearing like accuracies, focus on accuracy is really important. Focus on maintenance is really important. Are there any other attributes that you said, these are the deal breakers among the, all the vendors out there? We have to have this. Well, I think the, the wireless connectivity was huge too. The fact that we could install electrical receptacles and plug them in and with a, a wireless mesh network with gateways and relays that we knew worked already and from our DC experience mm. was huge because getting the data out of the buildings had to happen and we, and we couldn't do it cost prohibitively. So we knew we had the technology that worked and functioned in our DC region that was Senseware technology and layering on IEQ sensors was something we knew we could do with our in-house labor. Got it. So can you talk about what that solution looked like in terms of where did you measure things? Because you guys only have control over, you know, amenity spaces, central areas, corridors, typically, right? So how, how are you thinking about what to measure versus what not to measure? Sure. So I would describe our program as landlord air quality assurance, and we're mm-hmm. looking at supply side and return side, a representative sample from floors in buildings, and okay. then we're comparing that against outside air. And what that does is by knowing the quality of the outside air across the same variables, fine particulate, VOCs, relative humidity, temperature, carbon dioxide, and then seeing what the supply side looks like, you can you can test the efficacy of your filtration, right? Mm-hmm. If, if outside PM gets high and it's lower across the filter is great, how much lower? And we set threshold for that. And so we align our thresholds for all of these indicators, all these variables with standards like well and reset and fit well. And for now we're calibrating to, let's say the most restrictive of those standards for each of those variables. And so we want to see, we want to know outside air, supply air, and then return air, what we're getting back from the tenant spaces in our buildings. And so we look at those same variables. Now, outside air and return air are going to look very different, right? And we we're excited about monitoring these patterns and beginning, beginning to understand 
more about what we can do to control carbon dioxide in particular within tenant spaces and how we can tune ventilation from a prescriptive, hey, double your ventilation rate from 20 to 40 CFM per person to more of a performance standard where we're providing the right amount of ventilation to control contamination with CO2. So cool. Serene, can you talk about your guys' sort of commitment to accuracy like Ben talked about and then the, the maintenance side of things? It's one of the things I've been thinking about over the past two years as these sensors have, you know, proliferated for lack of a better term. So, you know, my background as an energy engineer, we used to use CO2 sensors a lot. And we also used to use fault detection software a lot. And one of the, like the classic faults is that your CO2 sensor is not accurate, right? So can you talk about like what it takes to be accurate at first and then maintain that accuracy over time? Yeah. So I, I, to us, the commitment to accuracy comes from the fact that we first see ourselves as a data company versus an IAQ company. And we just know that garbage in, it's garbage out. And so from a data, if we're just trying to give you data that answers your business questions, it better be good. And so that's kind of the core of why it's so important to us. Now, when we talk about specifically IAQ, what's the reason of having IAQ monitor? It's, you know, I was talking to Dr. Mark Hernandez of University of Colorado Boulder that does a lot of work around U-type data and ratio filtration. He likes to use the word trust from Reagan, I think, trust but verify. And so there's a lot of investment around, uh, like Ben was mentioning, improving air quality in space. We know that these, you know, just these things, these measures will work, but how do you verify that? And so if you're trying to answer that question, oh, I want to verify that these are working, then again, the data needs to be accurate to answer those questions. So there are very important reasons for the data to be accurate. Well, how do we how do we do that? First of all, one of our core principles is that when we select sensors, we go to the source of innovation. So if we're integrating a particular matter sensor, we look at who is innovating in that space, which manufacturer is innovating, and we go to that source and we get their sensor. Hmm. Uh, so we try to avoid any replicated counterfeit type sensors, you know, on manufacturers. We like to work with the, with the main, main innovators. So that's one way we ensure accuracy. The second way we do, it comes back to our plug and pay universal sensor interface. We we actually have 43 patents on that whole concept. Okay. And the idea behind, we and we use that strength of the technology to rev on sensors very quickly. Because today I can have, a C, I could go to the source of innovators for the CO2 RPM and they would have that sensor. But Specific with I, the IQ, you know, sensor manufacturing world, they're improving so much rapidly, very quickly. So in a matter of months, we see new PM sensor, new CO2 sensor. They use better technology. And so what we do is we're always looking out for those. And once there's a new version of the sensor we've used is out from the labs, we just switch it off. And we can do it very quickly given that universal sensor interface you know, innovation or IP that we have. So those are the two ways we just ensure the accuracy of the sensor that we have. And I think, yeah, definitely important. 
Cool. Yeah. Last week I wrote this newsletter called Abstraction Traction, which we'll put in the show notes. And I would I would include what you guys do as a sort of abstraction that's needed for in the industry. Like everyone can't figure out who has the best sensor at all times forever. Right. So that we, we need people like you guys to really nerd out on each of different type of sensor and sort of abstract away that complexity. And I think that needs to happen more and more and more. Very cool. So Ben, you talked about standards. Can you talk about the journey with, you know, you've mentioned well, UL, FitWell so far. Can you talk about the, the the journey there? And it sounds like some of them are, they're helpful for different stages. And it sounds like you guys have also created your own standard. So can you talk about how, how that has worked? Sure. We're, we're, we haven't publicly released our standard, but I'll, I'll give you a preview. And okay. it's heard it here first. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, just going back to what we were just talking about, there are a lot of talented people in the IQ space that we met with. And we, and there are also a lot of great hardware solutions. I think what we noticed in our interview with Senseware is that they were, they really owned their hardware solution and had demonstrated the capacity and the ability to work with our team members. And we are very hands-on as an organization and they pledged to work hands-on with us. Hmm. It didn't feel like a sale. It was more of a, we're going to go on this journey together. And I, I really think that was what differentiated them from the other very talented uh, people we met with. So our standard is based on first and foremost reset, not because we want to do what reset does. We can't, Rafer Wallace is way too smart for us to <laughs> deal his ideas, but we, we want to be able to position our buildings as reset ready so that we can go forward and achieve a reset level certification at certain properties at the right time. And so first we want to understand what are these sensors telling us, but we absolutely want to be positioned in a manner that we could meet a reset certification or we could meet a well building certification for the core shell. All of this is core shell, or we could meet, um, well, we meet and exceed the fit well standard. And so all, as all these standards and recommendations, UL now has a, a recommend, recommendation for IQ monitoring that they've released. All of these standards, like we, we want to make sure that we're aligned and it's, it's almost like future proofing more IAQ certification, which I think is coming down the line. We're also doing manual testing, as I mentioned, twice a year. Mm-hmm. This is another layer of assurance that in real time, moving from more of like a, a snapshot to an, an analog view, it's, it's digital, but it's analog of what's going on through, through the entire year. And so if there are shocks or, you know, spikes they can be addressed with alerting. And alerting is another thing we're working through now. How do you alert at the proper intervals for the right things to avoid creating noise? Yeah, you read my mind. That was where I wanted to ask you next. But but first on the standards, the can you talk about in the context of what you guys are doing with the supply return outside air monitoring, how that leads into the, the standard you've created? Yeah, sure. So the, the most important for the standards is our supply air and return air. Um, okay. So outside air is really just about efficacy of the filtration. So we can see how the filters are working. And then the supply side, whether the mixing is bringing down the CO2 concentration we're seeing in the return or any other contaminants we're seeing in the return. So we want to make sure we're getting enough outside air mixing to return the CO2 concentration as close to ambient as possible before supplying the air back into the tenant spaces. So the, the, the key component we're looking at for the 
the, the key sensors we're looking at for the standard is the supplier sensors. Okay. What's going into tenant spaces? Are we below a threshold of say 750 parts per million carbon dioxide concentration? So there's a there's a metric for each one of the the variables, if you will, that that is a threshold not to exceed. So we're doing very standard threshold analysis through the Senseware platform. Got it. And then can you guys? I want to go. You answer this first, Ben, and then I want to go to you, Serene, to hear how you think about this. But obviously, at some point the air in the space is not going to meet your standard. So like, what do you do after that? You mentioned alerting. I've worked with some folks on the analytics side to think about, okay, what are the right, you know, FDD rules that need to be written? Like what are the, the action items that need to happen after this happens? Right. Because ideally you're getting to a root cause. What's the cause of that uh, fault? What's the cause of that overage or or reason you're not meeting the standards? How are you thinking about when that happens and how you, how have you guys kind of operationalized that? It's the same as it should be the same as troubleshooting a hot or cold call. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we, we go, we we seek out the deficiency. Is there a damper that's not opening and closing properly? Is there a fan that's not operating properly? Has something failed in the system? And that's what we're uniquely good at doing as an active manager of our properties. Right. So we're not we're not empowering a third party manager to do this work. We're doing it ourselves, and so we we really we want to use it like a, a hot and cold call. It's a deficiency that gets addressed in real time if and when we see an alert. So that, that's the intent. And so when, when we return, when, when we have more heavily occupied buildings, which is happening right now, which is great, we'll probably have a lot more to say about you know, what, if anything, we, we saw as patterns. And I think that's the exciting part is how we use this data to operate our buildings better because operational excellence and fault detection is clearly like where this goes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Serene, how are you thinking about that side of things. So a couple of things. One of the things we we continuously try to introduce is more consultative data. We call them, you know, the fancy word is virtual sensors. So we we create calculated data from the individual sensor data that gives you a little bit more of an idea of what the issues that you may want to look at. So as an example of that, we have this ventilation score. It takes into account particulate matter levels, CO2 levels, and VUC levels, water organic compound levels, and the rate of decay over time. Hmm. And that, if we look at the shape and also this how smooth it is, we could say that your ventilation is performing well or not. So when you look at that one data point versus oh, the CO2 levels and the PM, like individual sensor, it's it gives you a little bit more of an idea of what it's a ventilation issue. We do okay. the same thing, for example, and create a mold index. So if that is, you know, has a, is in a bad, you know, is, is, uh, at a bad threshold or or whatnot, we know that you know you may be having that type of issue versus looking at just humidity levels individually and particulate. It doesn't necessarily always tell you the full picture. Where can you go and troubleshoot? So things like that are some one way we are helping our clients better better troubleshoot things. The second piece, which is back to giving back, which is something very personal to me, is that as we talk to these leaders like Ben and others uh, in the industry, and we learn, we like to be very close to our customers and learn about different ways they are responding to some of the issues, because we're, we're still at the very early stages of understanding the entire, you know, 
air quality and air quality improvement through sensors. We want to capture that information and create guide, guidelines or some, you know, sheet sheet. You know, someone else had this issue. How do we cross pollinate and help? You know, just yeah, shortcut some of the guessing of what to do. So those are the two two ways we we're trying to help. Got it. So Ben, you mentioned more and more people come back to the office. I think the last thing, so you and I last summer when we did our episode talked about how you're kind of managing that IAQ energy nexus for lack of a better term, more IAQ equals more energy. I would, I would imagine that as more people come back to the space, more people, more CO2 is created, more ventilation needs to happen. So then therefore energy use then would go up. How are you thinking about that today versus last summer? Any any changes on how you're thinking about that? Yeah, I, I am concerned about the impact of increased ventilation on, on air quality. I think one of the, or excuse me, on energy performance, I think one of the uh, one of the mitigating factors is that we have heat recovery in a lot of our buildings that's mm-hmm. going to help take the curse out of that, at least through the, the winter months and, and in some case in the summer. But I do think we're seeing a rebound. I mean, we're, we're still operating at an energy use intensity 20% below baseline for this time of the year. And we're watching it closely. We're getting reports from Hatch Data every week. I get a variance report that tells me how buildings are trending against the pre-COVID baseline. And we're looking for pops, all right? And then we're, we'll, we'll drill into where we see large escalation and figure out what's going on. So it is a concern, remains a concern. You know, increased energy use because tenants are coming back to work is, is a champagne problem in my view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we want people to be enjoying the space. We want to have our tenants back. We want to welcome them and we want them to feel it's safe. So that's that's our primary objective at the moment. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, and maybe that answers this question, but how do your like investors think about that problem, right? Because, you know, on one hand, they're saying we demand you to be, I can't remember what your guys' carbon target is. On the other hand, we demand, you know, a a great experience when our customers come to the office. I think, I don't want to be disrespectful of investors, but it's not a key priority for them. Just like it's not a key priority for policymakers in our cities. They're not really concerned about that. They want decarbonization to occur and their operating partners are the ones that figure it out. <laughs> and uh, that's, that they're, I think the primary object, objective of theirs is to demonstrate that they're, the companies in which they're investing are making progress on climate action. And a story about slowed climate action because of ventilation is not, not a story people want to talk about. It's not just investors. I think it's everybody. Well, damn it. We talk about it on this podcast. Uh, well, this has been so much fun. Thank you both for telling the stories uh, about real world, real world work going on in the buildings. Can we close out with some carve outs? So what, what book, movie, TV show, podcast, you know, any other thing you want to share, would you recommend people check out? Let's start with you, Serene. Uh, yeah, I, I did have to think about it. I, you know, just do so much. The company keeps me busy, but I do. I was thinking, I was like, what are the things that I do outside of work? And I think just three areas that I'm interested in. A lot of things related to startups that goes back to actually my work, you know, as an adjunct professor. So I, I like this podcast, a couple of them, How I Built This by MPS and Kai Rizdal. 
uh, is a great one. And the other one is startup therapy, which is amazing to combine, you know, real situations that startup founders go through and um, how to deal with it, you know, burnout and, and things like that. So that's one. I do a lot of food and health type, you know, healthy food also type stuff. You know, there's, uh, you know, a couple of things there, a book called Just the Good Stuff, just nice recipes of things we really crave, like brownies or things like that, that are healthier, made in a healthier way. So that's a, a big passion of mine. And then a big other areas related to personal development and also leadership. So reading things like, you know, essays related to The Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell, Adult Development Theory by uh, Robert Keegan, one of the uh, Harvard University of Education professors, you know, all the stages and how do you improve through life and mature through these different five stages of adult development and things like that, I think would be really insightful for people. So I hope that's helpful. So those are a few things that came up for me. I'd love for you to send me the, the top essay on the hero's journey and we'll put okay. that on the show notes. What's your favorite yeah. one? Send me that. Um, I love that list. That's, that's really fun. Thank you for sharing that. What about you, Ben? I didn't know we were going to get so comprehensive, but that, that is it. I got some of those written down. We are, I, I love podcasts. I, I love yours, James. It's frequently on my pod roll. I think, David Roberts, the Volts podcast, he's doing some really good and important work around decarbonization and high voltage transmission and all the change that needs to occur. I leave his podcast inspired and also you know concerned about how much we have left to do. And then like men, real estate executives in the office business, I share a guilty pleasure of We Crashed, the Jared Leto interpretation of Newman is absolutely magnificent. I just started watching that over the weekend. It's on my list. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. That's great. All right. So mine is, I've been sharing books recently and believe it or not, I just can't, I haven't finished the ones that I've already talked about on past episodes. So no, no more, no more books. I want to share my favorite band. So I listened to this band probably, I think I'm in the top 0.5% of all Spotify listeners for this band. So I'm like, I have to be like in their top fan list. I've seen them three times. I've seen them at Red Rocks last year. They're, it's called Krungbin. Yeah. They're, they're based in Austin, Texas. It's a trio. I'd recommend anyone go check it out. They have great YouTube videos and, but I'd recommend their, their album. It's called the universe smiles upon you, which I love that name as well. So Everyone is welcome. I'm just going to say you're welcome now. If you've never heard of Krungbin, I'm, I'm giving you that gift. Have you uh, heard so the, uh, the Rishi K. Sherway song, Exploder? No. Oh, you have to listen to that. It's incredible. How have song, I not seen this? They break down So We Won't Forget, one of their great songs, oh. and how they wrote it in all the stages. Absolutely must listen to that. And then, yeah, Mordecai is one of the greatest albums of all time. That's a constant in our house. Awesome. Um, Band. I think we just got closer than we already were, Ben. I love it. But I'll have to check out that song Exploder. I didn't know that existed. And you just Incredible. like you're gonna make my walk back to my Airbnb all that much better. So thank you both for coming on the show. This is super fun. 
All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day. Thank you.